Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. We're putting on red jackets this week as we refrain from calling each other chicken and wonder, what's living? All while I figure out how to achieve hair like James Dean. We're talking Rebel Without a Cause this week on Zach on Film. Hello, Zach. Hello, Stephen. 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. Our movie this week. That's a movie. Uh, based on a 1934, uh, like, uh, doctor kind of thing about what's wrong with kids these days. Yeah, that was really weird when I read that. I mean, it kind of makes sense, but then they were like, oh, they didn't use, like, anything from you know the that, I think they, they honestly... <laughs> they wanted the title. Warner Brothers just wanted the title. Yeah. And they bought it. Uh, but it's based on a. Uh, the title comes from uh, psychiatrist Robert L. Linder's 1944 book *Rebel Without a Cause: A Hypnoanalysis of a Criminal <laughs> Psychopath*. Uh, but uh, we don't. Well, I think there's a psychopath in this film. A couple of them, perhaps, uh, in this film. <laughs> but basically, the movie starts off at a police station where we're introduced. To a drunk, mm-hmm. a whore, mm-hmm. and a psychopath. Yeah. And uh, this is their story. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what... Like, I mean, that's basically, how they're, yeah. that's basically how they're classified. I mean, yeah. uh, James Dean's character, Jim Stark, is picked up for public drunkenness. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Easter Sunday. Right. Um, Natalie Wood's character is picked up for walking the streets at night yes. with the... And there's the implications in the conversation she has with the police officer that she goes with boys as a and I put goes with boys in air quotes. Yes. Yes. uh, As a reaction to uh, not getting affections from her father uh, to get a rise out of him. Right. 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 And then we're introduced to the psychopath, this 15 year old who goes around killing puppies because his mom and dad aren't there. Yeah. And that Mm -hmm. was the most disturbing part of the whole movie. What? Why do you kill? Oh, no, I don't what, think what, that's what that's did you, what did you shoot? Why did you do shoot those puppies? Uh, have you ever thought about sending him to a psychiatrist? Oh, no, the missus doesn't believe in that head shrinking stuff. Here's the here's the thing about this. Um, and, I, and I think this is important. The like the cop's reaction to him mm-hmm. shooting puppies isn't that no. drastic. Uh-uh. Yeah. Later on, uh, Jim. Um brings up like when they're like walking around that abandoned house they're talking about kids and how they're terrible right they're like oh you should drown them like puppies right like put them in a bag and drown them like puppies i think in 1955 it was just okay to kill dogs yeah well i kind of agree with that but yeah it is especially knowing what we know these days that you know, that first mark of the sociopath is injuring smaller animals and right, working right. your way up to killing people. But 
that sequence and just the way that it's so deadpan and so quiet, there's, there's no anger from Plato. There's no real accusation from the cop. It's more of a, why'd you do it, Johnny? Why would you do that? Why'd you throw a bottle through the front window of old man Rogan's right. tavern? You know, it's not you murdered animals. It's mm -hmm. why'd you do something dumb to get in trouble? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that reaction kind of goes through the whole movie. I mean, there's a couple kids that die, and it, it sometimes doesn't seem like anyone cares, and well, everyone's actually kind of happy. So keep in mind, <laughs> keep in mind it's that this 50. story takes place literally within a 24-hour time period. No, it I understand. It starts at 3 a.m. in the morning on Sunday mm -hmm. and ends 3 a.m. in the morning on essentially Tuesday sure. or 3 a.m. Monday morning to 3 a.m. Tuesday morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, if you look at the death of Buzz, right. everyone uh, doesn't really react that horribly to it. And then you have the death of Plato at the end. Yes. And then... Um, Spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Well, sure. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe maybe Zach well, no, so Jim so Jim walks off with a lady friend. Yes, Judy. And the parents are tickled, like, "Oh, our boy okay, is a so girl, and his friend is laying there dead, shot by yeah, the yeah. cops." What a happy ending! But you have to also look at there's the aspect of relief that it wasn't their boy. Right. That that got shot, that needed to get shot. And I think that there, you know, there's an element psychologically of, what's the word I'm looking for? Of numbness to everybody in this film. Mm -hmm. Because nobody has psychologically really, really violent reactions to anything except for Jim. And when he has them, everybody just looks at him uncomfortably like he's he's doing something wrong. But they don't respond in kind, and they don't go, Jim, what's wrong with you? You're over the top. They're just like, oh, son. Yeah. Well, but I, so, again, time period. And, you know, they keep saying, oh, 10 years from now, you'll have a whole different perspective on this. We are, you know, 60-some years out from this movie. Sure. Right? Yes. Or nearly 60 years out from this movie. Yeah. Um, and, I've, you know, I really do not like this movie. I know a lot of people applaud james dean for his acting i did not care for any of the acting from any actors in this piece even jim Bacchus, i, I didn't oh. really care for it but oh. just because everyone is so very wooden and so very we're delivering our lines very slowly and we're not getting emotional and so from that perspective i don't really care for it from the psychological let's take a look and see what's going on with teenagers at the time and the fact that we're looking at a suburban – we're looking at teenagers in a suburban environment. Los Angeles is a suburban environment. Okay. But we're looking at – you know, you just a few years before, we had um, – uh, what's his name? Uh, Superman's father, Jor-El, mm -hmm. dressing up in biker gear and running down the, the road on, on motorcycles and being motorcycle gang and, and people saying, well, this is, this is what our society is coming to with these punk oh, kids right. coming back from the – uh, from the war and everything. Um, and now this is almost like, well, what's going on in suburbia, right? We've mm -hmm. seen what happens at the New York kids. We've seen what happens to the inner city kids with the gangs. What are these, what are these suburban kids doing? And we kind of get this right now. And, you know, if, if people want to see emo, emo children, we've got it in Plato mm -hmm. and uh, Jim and Judy. Mm -hmm. And I think 
you know, if Matthew and I and Rodrigo all think back to when we were in our early to mid teens, 15 through 18. Yeah, we were probably going through a lot of these things, same things, too. My parents don't understand me. Uh, I don't belong. I'm constantly being picked on and I'm trying to deal with these things. But now, you know, 30 years out from that for Matthew and I, a little bit more than 30. Well, no, a little bit under 30. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Not by much, though. Not by much. Um, You know, now we look back on it and it's like, eh, you know, that was all just part of the growing up. And I wonder, Zach, if you kind of you're a little bit closer to the age that the characters are supposed to be in this movie. Mm -hmm. Granted, you're from a smaller community and not, you know, something like this. But did you get that sense of, oh, you know, life is boring. We're all going to die and this is meaningless and I can find no meaning in my life from this movie or from life? No, I mean, do you did you see those parallels from when you were in high school in this in this movie? Yeah, I think I think you could draw a line between feelings that teenagers have and what is generally represented in this film. I think a line that would probably connect with uh, me, teenage self, or others is when um, Buzz and Jim are ready to do the chicky run, mm-hmm. and Jim's like, "Oh, why do we do this?" Yeah, and then with Buzz says, "Like we got to do something or some, something, right. something, something along those lines." I feel like there's a sense of that in in teenage lives. Like, oh, we might as well just do something. Yeah, Does it matter think, if it's completely reckless or not? Yeah. Go ahead, Rodrigo. I think that's um, the, the, the reason I think why Row Without a Cause is so resonant is because, I mean, I don't know if it was the very first, but it's one of the first suburban teenager right. movies. Right, yeah. Um, and one thing that suburban teenagers have that a lot of urban teenagers have, and this is also true for kids that grow up in the country is boredom. Yeah. There's not as much to do in the suburbs as there is in a city and in a city, especially if you're a low income person, um, or you live in a really bad neighborhood, part of your time is spent kind of trying to avoid trouble or getting yourself into the level of trouble that you that is going to get you paid or whatever, right? Right. Mm-hmm. In I, the I, suburbs, you don't have that. So these kids do all these crazy things because they're bored, which I've I find extremely interesting. It's just mm-hmm. the, the, the the lengths to which they go, right? Right to the point of endangering their lives and past it. Yeah. Um, because they're bored. Yeah. Let's have a knife but, fight. We're not going to really hurt each other. We're just going to poke each other a little sure. bit. Have a knife. You know, but but, but the, the interesting thing. I was going to say the interesting thing here is, and I don't know about the 60s because maybe this movie came out right at the right point and then James Dean dying right before the movie's release caused it to be popular for the next decade. But if you look, you know, like in the 80s, we've got The Breakfast Club, which is kind of this without anybody really dying. We look at Boys in the Hood. Mm -hmm. We've got that same thing. I mean, you have, it seems like in every generation, a movie that says, well, here's what teenagers are thinking right now and here's why teenagers are acting this way but if you were to watch all of those movies in a row you'd find out that there are extreme parallels between all of the all the characters on all those films and this general sense of where is my place in this world and how am i supposed to act and why am i and we we see this a lot with uh, natalie wood's character judy she wants attention from her father which she now suddenly doesn't get because she's developed a body that now probably makes the father uncomfortable. And he thinks that, Oh, you're too old for that kind of stuff now. Mm-hmm. 
And so she doesn't know how to react to this. And she's looking for this. And poor Plato, who doesn't have a uh, a father or a mother who's always uh, absent. Uh, and then uh, uh, James Dean's character, Jim, whose father is really just kind of henpecked and won't stand up for himself. Or uh, in, in and I think almost more importantly, won't give him any direction in life right, right. and won't give him really any boundaries or anything. Right. Right. So again, look at Breakfast Club and look and see how many of those characters have some of the same characteristics that we have here mm -hmm. uh you come from a violent home you come from a place where your parents don't um respond to you the alashidi character um you look at um essentially uh, jim stark was supposed to be a lot more nerdy in this film than than he was mm -hmm. uh, but then you got james dean good looking 24 good looking 24 year old playing a <laughs> they would, 17 year old they would, to, they would try to put glasses on him and they would disintegrate <laughs> yeah, they wanted him to wear more um, Tweety Tweety jackets instead of the red jacket that they eventually went with. Um, but yeah, he was supposed to be much more of a nerdy character. Matthew, what were you going to say a little bit ago? I'm sorry. It, it's it's really important to think about the fact that the 1950s is really the point where adolescence, as we know it, became recognized as a thing. Because mm -hmm. prior to that, in a lot of ways, you're you're 13, you're a man now. And this is the point where society started recognizing those, you know, 12 to 18, those ages as separate of childhood, mm -hmm. but also not quite adult. And I think that, you know, from my perspective, if you look at this movie, I don't think that this is just another, oh, what the kids are up to movie. I think this is also kids trying to come to terms with the fact that they're not kids. But they're not adults because, I mean, there, there's that that scene where Jim is like, what do you got? What do you do when you got to be a man? Yeah, that's the big question of this film for me is he's not a man. He cannot yet be a man. But throughout that film, throughout the experience of the film, he keeps bumping up against situations where he either feels he needs to be really wants to be or, you know, at near the end, flat out has to become a grown-up has to be the man that he doesn't know how to be because his, his, you know, his father is not what he needs to be. And I think that one of the really telling moments for me in this movie is the moment that Rodrigo mentioned where he's like, children should be put in a sack and drowned. But he says that as an incredibly dead-on impersonation of Jim Backus. Right, well, right. of Mr. Magoo. Mr. Magoo. Uh, yeah. but, but Jim Backus. And Jim right. Backus, when, in this movie, when he's speaking, has you can hear the Magoo in his voice. You can hear that speech pattern. You know that what he is doing at that moment is he's putting himself in the role of I'm going to be the de facto parent in this, you know, this moment, right. this unit, whatever. Right. This is how I know how to be a father. And that those are the kind of really quiet moments where I say the acting of James Dean is – utterly phenomenal it i mean it is literally incredible the amount of depth that he brings to moments that are just quiet moments you're thinking no he just oh wait a minute i never you know i never realized that until afterwards the fact that when he was in that situation the most horrible the most spineless the weirdest thing he could think of to say came out in an exaggeration of the voice of his actual father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Dean managed to do that in such a way that it was there if you wanted it. Oh, yeah. And if it wasn't, it was just a funny voice and a funny line. No, no, I think everybody got that part. Um, 
you know, and under, and understood that he was being his father and that Natalie Wood was being her mother. Uh, and poor Plato was just caught as this lovesick puppy child um, <laughs> who was going to be drowned by getting thrown in the swimming pool. Um, from the story perspective, I, you know, I like uh, whoever was saying a moment ago about uh, that James Dean Jim actually has to grow up and become a man at the end of the movie. And I think that, you know, there's that scene in the cop car where Jim's mother and it's and it's again, it's it's talking right at the audience to a point where she's like, oh, you never think that this is going to happen to your child. And it's kind of beating it over the hit, uh, head like not not to a point. <laughs> she's looking right at the yeah, camera. Yeah. <laughs> you never think it's going to happen to your child. And you're like, oh, God, please. I know what you're trying to say is there are troubled youths out there and parents need to pay more attention to their kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but at times this movie becomes a little bit too preachy for me. Um and I don't know. I, I think that's I don't know if it's the preachy factor or the fact that and I'm not saying everyone's a terrible actor, but the pacing is so slow and the lines are delivered in such a way that it just is. It's a, almost a two hour movie that could have been cut down to about 90 minutes, I think. I agree. I, I agree that the that it's that the pace is kind of uh, slower than it wants to be. But I, I think to a certain degree, that is just the pacing that people were used to. I was surprised at how long this movie was. Because if you think back on it, like plenty happens. But um, I mean, honestly, this is like, I don't know. You you could have done this in an hour. You could yeah. have done this yeah. in, in 90 minutes in, instead of 100 and whatever. Now, but my – go ahead. I'm kind of glad that they did because one of the things that in that first, you know, that first sequence where Jim's in the, in the room with uh, the chief of control and they're having their little rap session and the chief is trying to be, you know, that uh, the police officer is trying to be that welcoming ear to try and keep him from becoming a full fledged juvenile delinquent. And we have that moment where James Dean is doing the slow burn and the slow burn, and finally it turns into that really possibly overly melodramatic outbreak of violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really found myself enjoying the fact that they let that moment build and build and build to the point where when it exploded, it was one of those moments where you're like, yeah, you know, he's been sitting here and it's, this whole thing is, is just bubbling up. And I can understand why that scene specifically, but a couple of others go as long as they do, because as, as a, you know, the consumer, as the person watching this, I was like, oh, my God, this is so uncomfortable. This is so just, oh, somebody yell, somebody kick, somebody scream. And when it happens, it's almost kind of satisfying when he flips out and starts punching the solid oak desk and hurts himself really bad. Yeah, hurt himself really bad. Had to wear a, a sling for a while on that uh, because of that. Um, you know, my issues of the pacing and. Acting aside, I still find this fascinating from the storytelling, even though it is two hours. I set up well until past two in the morning watching this movie and really enjoying it from the, okay, what is the underlying message? What are the character motivations? What is, you know, what is driving these characters and how do they fit into these various tropes? Um, you know, I really enjoyed watching the movie from that perspective because I haven't watched it from that perspective before. Mm -hmm. uh, the last time it's just like. Come on, get on with it, kid. You know, do something or, you know, come on, Jim Bacchus, uh, stand up and tell your kid to stay home and go to his room or do something um, and shut up, mom, or whatever. 
that's what needed to happen. I, I felt the first time I watched this movie, and was really greatly unsatisfied. Matthew was, uh, I don't know if you were live tweeting this uh, earlier today, Matthew, but you had commented that, oh, I thought this movie was in black and white. And probably because yeah. I, when we saw it in film class the first time, we may have been watching it on some crappy TVs that were probably better <laughs> off than black and white. But on a, on a technical side, uh, originally they'd shot a, a portion of this movie in black and white because it was going to be one of Warner Brothers B movies. Mm, right. And then uh, I guess uh, what's the movie that came out just before this with James Dean? It got so well, he was uh, up for an Academy Award. East of Eden. Yeah, East, East of Eden. Eden. And suddenly they said, oh, we need to now move this up and make this a bigger picture. And we need to uh, we need to do this in color. So that's when they went back and reshot everything in color. Um, that's when the the red jacket came into mm-hmm. into existence and, and created really an iconic right. look yeah um that still today is is you can look at uh fry from futurama yep. and you can go that's james dean right there mm-hmm. with the or hair as, as with the, the hair and around the- i'm like why does james dean look like fry <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that i did find in terms of just the construction um i wasn't bothered by the pacing but you know what i hated more than anything on planet earth jim right. bacchus the Jim musical wife. cues. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The music yeah. is over, overblown, fully orchestrated. It goes from maudlin to dun dun dun. <laughs> it, I mean, the music, the the movie's really good, and I liked. You know, I liked the performances. I felt like the the quiet, almost zombified performances. Let me, let, man, let me ask you a question about those performances. Okay. Did you? And and again, I had to go back and I had to do some rereading on James Dean mm-hmm. because there were moments where, you know, Plato totally idolizes uh, Jim Stark sure. in this. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plato loves Jim Stark. Well, yeah. but see, I think it goes beyond just that. I love you like my father figure. To I think Jim Stark was in love with. I mean, not the Jim Stark. Plato Wait. was in love with Jim Stark, and I think there may have been some. Hints of mutual attraction between the two characters. I did I, that come I, off? Yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think the, I think that's one of those things where um I I don't think that was purposeful, but Rebel Without a Cause in uh nineteen fifty-five was a movie about this do-nothing kid who is way too emotional for his own good and is doing stupid things, who befriends this other kid who wants him to be his dad. Mm -hmm. In 2014, Rebel Without a Cause is about this movie about the only sane man in a world where everybody behaves like uh, a robot. Yes. Um, And he has a gay psychopath who's in love with him. Yes. Like, Mm -hmm. it it becomes something completely different. But also, you know, just this... As the characters are interacting with one another, this feeling that Jim, who is lost and doesn't know what he wants to do, might want to experiment on that side or uh, it, especially when they're saying goodnight to one another uh, Mm -hmm. outside his door after everything's happened. It's almost like you're waiting for them to kiss one another. Um, It it was definitely there in that scene. And Salmoneo intentionally played his part. And he, I mean, he said this in his, in his biography, and I remember reading things about this, is he intentionally played his part as being smitten mm. with Jim. Mm-hmm. And James James Dean actually apparently at one point said that to Sal Mineo and the director that Plato should look at Jim the way Jim looks at Judy. 
Yes. That subtext is 100% okay. then I, there. Then I read that then oh, yeah. in that you way. Know. And, and I, when I went back, I mean, there are some questions on whether um, uh, James Dean had engaged in any homosexual activity. And, well, you know, he, he said that um, – I forget the exact quote, but he says life is basically too interesting to just – yeah. You know, follow one path or something like that. And there's but it, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's just very interesting when you, when I watch this, I was like, oh, these two are really in love with one another. And it had it been a different time. It would have been totally different if this movie were made today, Rodrigo. Uh-huh. I think they would be the couple. I don't know. I think I mean, I think even in this movie, it's clear that um Plato is really into Jim, but Jim's really into Judy. Yeah. True. Um, yeah. And who isn't yeah, into yeah. Judy? Holy cow. Va, va, voom, Natalie Wood. Yeah. But I think that there's definitely a, a subtext there of all of these characters are desperately grabbing onto something mm-hmm. to try and, you know, whether it's, whether it's to make sense of their life, to figure out who they are, what they want to do. You know, they, keep in mind, halfway through the movie, Judy and Jim are in love. But a third of the way through <laughs> Less the movie, than a Judy day. had... Judy had another boyfriend. Yeah, who just died. He he died horribly, and now all of a sudden they're (laughs) responding. I mean, but that's so realistic to that teenage experience. I cannot tell you how many times I played out that particular, you know, stupid sort of thought process between the ages of 13 and let's say 27. 47? 20. Shut your hole. (laughs) Zach, I'm curious overall from story perspective what you thought. Of of this, I mean, this is supposed to be your perspective. Is not just the three old no, guys, you guys talking. You, you guys Two old guys and a middle aged guy. Um, I was watching this and I thought in the middle, I really hope this is all a dream because all these people suck, and I hope there's just some weird like olden time epiphany of a lesson learned at the end. He wakes up and he's either still passed out on the street with that weird monkey thing, which never came back up, but is a cool looking monkey thing. Or he was just like, he wakes up passed out in the police station and his parents pick him up and he's, oh, I'll never booze again or whatever. Like, that would have made sense. But I was <laughs> I'll like, never, I'll never major again. Yeah, yeah. I'll never booze again. Because <laughs> I was just like, I was so concerned about the humanity of almost every character of just how they don't completely care about anyone else. Because they're trying to figure out where they are, mm-hmm. it's they they disregard death. Well, it's not. I don't think it, it's it's just them. It's everybody. Yeah, it's everybody. I mean, it's even the parents don't want to think about anybody oh, but themselves. No, no, absolutely yeah. no. It's no, it's everyone. The yeah. the parents are. I mean, the mom is trying to not deal with any of her problems by making their family move and kind of putting yep. the blame at her son like she she has issues that she is not willing to address and th- so does everyone else in this film it, but and the it comes off as horrible selfishness after buzz is dead crunch and goon and moose by the way that's my cover band my crosby Seals <laughs> and nash cover band crunch and goon and moose oh, i thought it was your after, archie's cover band <laughs> they come after jim right right but there's never any real thought process that they're coming after jim because their friend died no, it's as if they're coming after Jim because they're they're malicious engines of destruction, and he's something that they that they they just want to crush. They want to well, they want to something about. Well, Jim well it goes back to broken. it goes back to what uh, Zach had said. 
they're going after Jim because they're concerned about themselves. They're yeah. concerned that he's going to talk and they're all going to get in trouble because more than likely it was those three that stole the cars right. that right. ended and up then, leading to somebody's death. So I think they're really more looking out for themselves. Mm-hmm. They, but they, they want to destroy him. Even before the whole thing breaks down, they're all egging Buzz on. And he's like, uh, I'm not going to really knife you. I'm just going to knife you a little bit. Yeah. Which that whole sequence between Buzz and Jim was very homoerotic as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, young, uh, young Dennis Hopper in this movie. Yes, young blonde Dennis. Hopper. Yes, young blonde Dennis Hopper. <laughs> um, apparently moon. during <laughs> apparently during the filming of the scene, and we'll get to some more technology stuff in a minute. Uh, apparently during the filming of the scene where the kids are all looking over the cliff, there was actually a nuclear test going off, and <laughs> so. Um, I don't know if you could really tell in the movie or if it was a different take, but apparently uh, things light up during the explosion. And that's actually a nuclear bomb going off uh, and the and the light from the uh, from the oh nuclear my. bomb illuminating part of that scene. Wow. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Zach, any other things that you picked up from the story wise or what you liked um, or didn't like from the story? I, I can't really say I disliked the story. I think. It, it felt long, but it felt long because it didn't know kind of what it wanted to do mm-hmm. at times. I mean, which kind of plays back into the characters. They really don't know what they want to do. And it, sometimes it felt like the film didn't know where it was going. And I think that, that it certainly made the film longer. I think when my son's 15 or 16, I'm going to sit him down and have him watch this movie mm-hmm. and see what kind of reaction he has. Yeah, Granted, that'd be that's, interesting. That's, you know. Yeah, it's a ways. <laughs> yes, it's a ways away, providing yeah, yeah. that I'm still alive at the time. Sure. But I just want to see what his reaction is. If, if he suddenly comes to this epiphany of, this is exactly how my life is, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, those kinds of things. If he starts to see parallels between what's going on at his age and, and others. Because so James Dean died right before this movie was released. The studio still decided to release it. Um, uh, Giant uh, had still not been released yet. And it came out after this, after James Dean's death. But I'm just wondering if this was a huge teenager movie that they watched it because of James Dean, but then also latched onto the story very much like people uh, who watched Titanic went for Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. and then ended up staying for the love story. It's it's definitely an interesting parallel. And I think that part of the part of the reason that the movie has retained its notoriety is due to the fact that it's kind of a story about a young, aimless man who finds out that life is not what he expected it to be and then dies at a strange point. And I think having that parallel in the life of one of the main actors, not necessarily his character, but in the main actor, I think that definitely would, would bring people to it. But there's a universality to this movie because I didn't grow up in the fifties. Right. I didn't grow up in, you know, a, a, a family or a, a lifestyle, anything like this. I found myself really connecting to these characters feeling, you know, very lost and out of sorts and feeling, you know, yeah, this this does remind me of of periods of my own life, which sure we'll call them the teenage years. And I, you know, there there are points in this movie when they're, you know, especially the sequence in the swimming pool and directly after the swimming pool when the characters are so sweet and so wonderful and so vulnerable and you're like, "My god, these are actually some pretty nice little kids. And, you know, I, I thought that these are some nice kids, but whatever's going on in their life is turning them into these 
weird psycho psycho murderous bastards doing terrible terrible things and i think that you know you get to a point where yeah i think james dean's notoriety brings people to the film and i think that probably that's why it got its first attention but i think that the the story itself the performances especially are really really attractive once you're there cool Zach, some uh, special people help make this episode yes, happen. Yes, a lot of special people make this happen. And we call them our associate producers, and now we shout out to them. Aaron Barnes, Ethan Boyd, Fisher Millard, Dominic LaFord, Hannah Jones, Douglas Hopkins, Jimmy Dunn, Steve Jukis, Jeffrey D'Amigo, and Jorge M. Tarohin. Ah, crap. I, I didn't have it. You I never had it. so good. I was, I was so close. It's uh, Jorge Tarjeta. There you go. No, that's not right. That's kind of close. <laughs> I didn't even know no. that. So uh, anything uh, in this movie look familiar and remind you of maybe another movie that you've seen uh, recently, Zach? Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> questions that I should have answers to. <laughs> it may, it no may not. It oh, may stalling. not. Oh, it, it, no, I don't time. No so idea. the whole house, the mansion that they end up with, it hits you the moment that you see the swimming pool. This is the location that oh, they shot Sunset it? Boulevard on. Yeah. One could almost one could almost imagine there. that Sunset Boulevard and Rebel Without a Cause are set in the same universe because this is now an abandoned mansion yep. left over from What's-Her-Face, who was arrested for killing her, her lover in the pool. Oh, wow. By this point in time, Nora Desmond is dead in a minimum security prison. I, but didn't – yeah. Uh, Sunset Boulevard came out five years before – so if it was in the same universe, I could see that being kind of set up that way. But it's so oh, soon weird. as you see, soon as you see that swimming pool, I'm like, yeah. I swear that is the same swimming pool, the same location that they used for yep. Sunset Boulevard. And then I did some research. There's, sure enough, the scene when the cops run up the stairs, I'm like, that's the same mansion. I know that's the same mansion. Yeah. Then that that for me really yeah. sold it. I th- I thought Stephen did that on purpose. No, no, no. I I f- completely forgot. But then as I was watching, I was like, holy crap, that's the uh, pool from Sunset <laughs> Boulevard. And then, yep, sure yeah. enough. Sure enough. So seen a lot. what were some technical things that you noticed that that you liked or some techniques that were used that you found interesting in this piece? Um, there's there's a, probably two of them I would expect probably. that you would bring up. Uh, there's a couple camera moves in the film that seem completely out of place, but totally catch your eye. One of them is when Jim's on the couch. And it starts as an upside down shot of his mom. Oh, and sure. The POV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it slowly rotates in the thing, um, which completely different to the rest of the film. And then there's two shots where they have just a regular, I don't know, like a two shot or three shot setup. And then they, and they rotate the camera into a Dutch angle. Right, right, right. And then they rotate it right back. Well, they don't rotate it what? necessarily right back. No, yeah, it'll, it'll so pause the main... for a second, get the get with the thing they needed to shoot in the Dutch, and then go back to the flat. So, angle. what does the Dutch angle represent? Because there's a very specific scene when Jim finally has an argument with his father, mm-hmm. and it takes place on the staircase, and suddenly everybody is it's a normal framing, and then it moves into the Dutch angle. What is the Dutch angle supposed to represent? Oh, it 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 uh, it mm-hmm. uh, words. It shows a uh, psychological imbalance on the part of the character. Wow, yeah, well, sure. maybe not, maybe not, not like just that, that but, but just conflict, it's, right? It, yeah, something different that's not normal. 
And so in this case, here is this kid lashing out at his parents, which is something you definitely don't do in the 1950s. Sure. And then that whole conversation becomes this angle, uh, which the way that they are staged initially, James Dean is on the stairs talking down to his parents. So he has the upper hand in that argument. Then at one point, his father stands and because he's closer in that frame, he almost takes command of that scene. And then the mother starts to block Jim's uh, exit out of that scene by climbing up on the stairs and preventing him from going up into his room. And from her standpoint, she becomes the powerful person in the scene. But then the angle, then the camera pushes in and takes that Dutch angle. And even though they're all staged at different heights, they suddenly all become at the same level, Mm -hmm. more or less. And just a little bit off. Sure. Um, but this, you know, can indicate that even in this fight, nobody has the upper hand because everybody is confused about what's going on. Mm-hmm. One yep. could read it that way. I mean, that's how I read it as. And it was a logical imbalance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was a perfect use of that of that uh, of that camera technique. I, mm-hmm. I like to I like to think of it as uh, I don't know if it actually matches up, but I like to think of it as like the moment where. Each of them almost sees the other's perspective, but then they don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes yeah. really close. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's something where, you know, when it comes to the Dutch angle, the Dutch angle puts me in a world where things are off kilter. And when things are off kilter, you feel and you, you know, you feel dis what's the word I'm looking at? Unease as a, as a uh, viewer. When you have that, there's a, an episode of the twilight zone where the whole thing is shot at a Dutch angle. And I didn't realize it at first, but it really made me nervous and it freaked me out. And at the point where somebody pointed out, that's why part of the reason why it's so powerful. I'm like, Oh yeah. Hey, Beavis. So I, I liked that whole sequence ex- with the exception of the part where the camera did the rotate for his head. Yeah, yeah. That was weird. But he didn't actually rotate. <laughs> we <sighs> cut back to him and he's mm-hmm. still there. And I'm like, well, wait, how did, <laughs> what, who, what? Yeah. And that's always, he's always, yeah, it's always <laughs> tricky when you try to do a stunt shot like that. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't match up to your next shot, it, it kind of falls apart. There were a lot of things edited out of this movie. Originally, the movie was supposed to be a lot more intense by 1950 standards. You asked about the monkey at the beginning of the scene and where that monkey came from. Originally, the movie was supposed to be opening with these kids beating up a father who was either coming home from work. I forget the whole thing, but, you know, he's the one that drops this monkey. And that's why when Jim drunkenly comes up on the scene later, he finds it. But that's how it got out there in the street. But. Uh, the studio and the editors all thought that it was a little bit too violent and over the top to see this guy getting beat up by a bunch of teenagers and was worried about repercussions from uh, from the studio system. Sure. So they lopped it out. And I think there's one other scene that was taken out that I guess historical societies are trying to get them to find the raw footage of that and preserve it because apparently it's an even better scene of James Dean um, acting in, in this movie. Uh, and the, even though. Yeah, acting, uh, even though it was, um, you know, completely taken out for time purposes or whatever purposes in the piece. So. Mm-hmm. Hello, Slenderman. <laughs> Stop that. Slenderman doesn't, <laughs> Slenderman doesn't make noise. <laughs> he does at your oh. house, Rodrigo. Uh, any other technique things That's that you noticed there, the, Zach? Uh, I noticed they used really weird colors of lights. Often. Did you do any? Did you do any research into this uh, color process that they were using? I did not. Okay, I didn't either. I just 
didn't know if you had no. because that you know a lot of times yeah, when this happens. I just yeah yeah I did. I just wanted to see if you. Yeah, had. I just wanted to see if you did it. <laughs> um, there's a lot of times where suddenly the color will shift, and if you really pay attention to those times where the color really shifts, you you notice that it happens right before a fade. And I think that's in the process of creating that fade that the color. Oh, I thought it was a just bit. a horrible transfer. Could be that too. Although you and I think watched it through iTunes. Yeah, and I watched iTunes, through iTunes. You know, when they release something that way, generally they take some care. Now mm-hmm. they could have not really cared about the transfer, including a lot of Blu-rays sure. in the early days. They could give two craps about doing a, a good, clean transfer or restoring things. Mm-hmm. Um, I would bet at some point they will try to restore this to its full glory yeah. but i think a lot of the wavering or wobbling in some of the color um was because that's the transition Process. from one to another yeah, yeah. yeah t-shirt sales soared after james dean ward in the film <laughs> Understand. Is this, a t-shirt what is this t-shirt what is oh, this seriously why is he wearing his undershirt is, on the outside is it an a shirt <laughs> i did think is it um, a b shirt i like how by today's standards for most of the film, the, the kids are uh, dressed up, kind of. Yeah, yeah this is yeah, what you yeah. had to do yeah, in the yeah, 50s. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. saying. But then Jack they can, like, the to to it's so normal to be dressed like that, that it's not a big deal if they're, like, running around and getting dirty and stuff. That's looked down upon. You can't get dirty nowadays. No, You can't? No. Dirt's bad. It's bad for you. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I should tell jacket. my kids. Yeah, well, I mean. Kids are filthy. Teach their own, I guess. Um, does it, does it bother anyone that nobody looks the age that they portray? I mean, James Dean was 24 in this movie and is okay. trying to portray. I mean, I'm sorry, even Lego though he's and Judy both look like teenagers to me, even though yeah, he's 24, does. even though he's 24, yeah. James Dean still looks like he's 45 years old in that movie. I don't know what it, I don't know what it was about the, you know, it seems like anytime you look at old pictures and I think Scott Johnson mentioned this on one of his shows earlier, uh, recently, he said, anytime you look at these oldie timey photographs, yep. you're seeing these people and you're like, holy crap, that guy's like 55, 60. And then you're like, <laughs> He's 20. Tom Jones at age 15. It's like, <laughs> holy crap. What's the deal going on with this? I mean, today, I mean, James Franco would back in his freaks and geeks years would have been a perfect fit to play Jim Stark yeah. in a remake of Rebel mm-hmm. Without a Cause. I was thinking Ryan Gosling about five years Except ago. Except neither of those guys have the, the gravitas for the role. But Natalie Wood was like 17 when they shot this movie, wasn't she? I thought she was born in 39. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. But uh, Plato looked like a 15-year-old kid. Salmoneo yeah. in this yeah. movie looked like a 15-year-old kid. Well, he kid. was born in 39. So he would have been 17, 16 in 1935. Yeah. Something like that. Hollywood, 1938. Yeah, so she would have been 17 at the time of this yeah. movie. But she she only felt like a kid in the scenes where she was playing against her ever so creepy and disturbing father. Yes. <laughs> because when you take her out of that, and I think part of it is the fact that, and forgive me, this is going to seem indelicate, ladies' undergarments in the 50s were designed to look like giant, Tops of 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 rockets. Well, it was a, it was called the bullet bra for a reason. Well, I understand. Or the rocket bra. Wood, at that. seventeen, wearing that out of context of other children, or out of a context where she seems like a child, she seems like a woman with giant gazongas. And I'm, you know, I, I I'm like watching this film and going, she looks like a teenager in certain sequences. And then in other places, she looks like a grown woman of 20 or 25. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think part of that problem too, is your only other people that you can compare that to are 
the two mothers and the grandmother that show up in the scene. There right. is another quote unquote girlfriend that mm-hmm. is in, in the uh, Griffith observatory scene. Mm-hmm. But other than that, you don't have any other frame of reference for young women uh, in mm-hmm. this movie. Yeah. How old was uh, buzz? Let's see. Corey Allen. Corey Allen would have been only 21 in this movie. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems even when I look at this, it's like these guys look ancient even at that oh. age. James mm-hmm. Dean, though, has one of those faces where I imagine that at six years old, he was like, I need a Marlboro. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I need a, I need some bourbon, mom. It was a tough day at kindergarten. You're tearing me apart. You're tearing me apart. <laughs> it's and funny. You know what else I thought about yeah. during that you're tearing me apart scene and the laughing at the bottom of the pool. Right. Mm-hmm. Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden is doing a uh, very mm-hmm. impressive James Dean. Mm hmm. Because that laugh at the bottom of the pool is the exact same laugh that Tyler Durden does in the you don't know where I've been, low sequence of Fight Club. Mm-hmm. And throughout that movie, you know, I'm like, why why do bits of James Dean's performance feel so familiar? I'm like, Brad Pitt was was totally doing James Dean in that movie or part of that movie anyway. It's funny. I'm looking at, you know, pictures of Natalie Wood. And I'm trying to find Pictures from her yeah, with Rebel Without a Cause, but I can't. I can't find. Yeah, funny. <laughs> it, you know, it, it takes you a while before you find anything from that movie. Most of the stuff came in her later life. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, fun she, fact: It is as the day we were recording. Be careful when you say fun fact because we don't want to turn this into some bad uh, Golden Globes debacle. Uh, uh, yeah, no joke. Uh, is uh, the day we were recording? It is Jim Bacchus's birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. Howell. Yes. Yeah, he would be what a hundred now. Uh, let's click on his profile. Nineteen thirteen. So wow. yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Because he well, in nineteen sixty four, he was roughly fifty years old as Mister Howell. But yeah, and the 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 Jim Backus in this movie. I think it was an interesting choice to cast him. I really do. It was. Well, I don't know that he was necessarily known as a, a super broad comic actor quite yet, but I think. You know, the voiceover work of, of Mr. Magoo, clearly, he's someone that now we think of as, you know, bug-eyed comic guy, love my teddy. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. But at this point in time, and the, the the performance that he delivers here, knowing how incredibly good he is at chewing the crap out of the bamboo scenery, I really can appreciate the, the subtlety of the role of, of the spineless dad that he puts into this, because... There's there's moments where you see a little glimmer of of the Jim Backus that I know and expect, especially near the end and and at the at the observatory. But most of the time, he just feels like he's so broken and so well. He is spineless. Yeah. Yeah. Go get him, Tiger. Remember, don't don't let him uh, pick you. You pick them. And I'm like, dude, what what is? He's trying to be hip. I mean, he's like uh, 50 and his kids and his 24 year old kids are still in high school. He's trying to be supportive in some in some way, shape or form. Crash cars. (laughs) Well, you just make sure you crash them good, son. The thing that I didn't realize um, about Jim Backus, just as an aside, I didn't realize that he's not actually an upper Manhattan sort of Massachusetts. He's from Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) um, Hey, Cleveland rocks. Cleveland does rock. I think Rodrigo lived in Cleveland, didn't you? No. Shaker Heights? No, no. <laughs> Solon? Yeah. Parma. Parma. <laughs> that is Drew Carey territory. 
It is true, mm-hmm. <laughs> Drew Caratory, if you will. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this other question. At the very last uh, shot, um, as the we're doing this big pull away, Zach, um, the police cars are leaving, and we see this man walking towards the uh, towards the observatory. That is uh, director. What's his name? Uh, Ray is his last name. Nicholas. Ray. Nic- Nicholas Ray. Um, and it's there because I guess he wants to interject himself into his films very sure. much like what we see Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, it was it was a thing. I guess what I mean. What are your thoughts, Zach, on on you interjecting yourself into into a movie just so you can um, say, "Look, there's me." And yeah, it's weird because even hitchcock so he started doing it and then it became a thing of like oh spot the hitchcock, is hitchcock gonna right. be in here so then he had to start putting it earlier in the film because then people could get out of their system they wouldn't right. have to worry about it anymore right um <laughs> so i mean i mean a lot of directors have done this spielberg and lucas have done it in the indiana jones movies and in the star wars movies they've done it um i'm, I'm just curious what yeah your, i don't know i mean why so did it i don't have i guess i really don't Peter have a problem Jackson with it does it yeah. Does he really? Yeah. Yeah. Peter Jackson's cool. in. Sadly. I think every Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Movie. Is he an orc? He's a um, hobbit in one. He's yeah. a townsman on Lake Town yeah. in this other one. He and uh, Steve Colbert. Yeah. yeah. And in the in the third one, in um, is he an eagle? No, he's <laughs> in, in one of them. He's in Helm's Deep. Oh, like, uh, guy. He's, he's gotcha. a zombie fighting out for his life. Yeah. I mean, Stan Lee Actually, keeps putting in himself first, in all his damn movies. So. In only in movies one, where I, he's I, had a he's had a role in creating those well, characters. I know. If only he was the director, that'd be weird. Uh, Stan Lee had a role in creating a lot of characters. Sure. Um, yeah. I guess I don't have a problem with it unless it becomes a thing, and then well, I think it becomes a thing to, to put your yourself film. in your movie. But it's another thing to you know star in your movie. Sure. Well, know, I mean, some people do that. I mean. Um, Affleck did that. I mean, he directed and starred in Argo. That's a little but, bit different, though, beyond just yeah. in, inserting right. yourself well, as no, a he cameo. Said, yeah, we said if you're going to star, I think there's a thing, but just putting <laughs> yourself in your movie to put yourself in the movie. Uh, Tommy Wiseau. I mean, I don't know. I guess I don't know what the benefit is. He's also uh, well, being torn apart. Honestly, I think the the... When a director puts himself in the movie, it, it basically serves two purposes. One, the director is now in his movie, mm-hmm. which means that because when, when somebody watches a movie, they can't see the director, right? Mm-hmm. They can sure. see all the work the director did, but they can't see them. And even if it's not obvious that that person's the director of this movie, now you're in the movie and at some point somebody has seen you. So I, I think it makes sense in that Interesting. sense. Yeah. Um, the other one... Uh, in a way, it's like an initial, right? Or like a signature or something like that. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, the other one is is that directors like it when people talk about their movies. And being spotted as a cameo for like film people is a lot more fun. Did you know that, oh. you know, the, the angry guy who shakes his fist as a protagonist <laughs> is actually director of photography, Rodney Sidney Times? Snot Pockets? Yeah. Yeah. Or did you know that juror number 12 is actually Rodriguez? Yeah. <laughs> did you know that Judge Ito is actually not in this movie? <laughs> well, I think it's, in, I mean, if it's just there to be there and it's something you find out after the fact, I, I, you know, I could carry their way. I think it's a little bit of an ego driven thing. But I, when it becomes that deal of 
spot the director. And again, Peter Jackson in the second Hobbit movie did it right away. I mean, the opening shot of the town that everything's happening in, he walks through that scene in the very first shot. And you get it done with really quickly. Yeah. I kind of, but when like it becomes that, that game, I, I I don't care for it. I like to be surprised by things as as opposed to oh here comes the well, here comes the Stan Lee uh, cameo. I I, I kind of like that. I liked the fact that Hitch put himself in his movies, but it you know it it's different when you're an Alfred Hitchcock because Alfred Hitchcock as a director had a unique sort of visibility from his time you know on television and even before that people knew oh hello i talk like this i'm alfred hitchcock there's there's kind of um i don't know a a little bit of that that myth making at play and if you can pull it off if you're somebody like a hitchcock who by all accounts was an utter lunatic you know you can and i mean that in the sweetest way possible please don't sue uh, you can get away with that. I, I feel like that's an okay thing. It's nice to have a little signature thing, but it's also something that could easily become problematic and right. very easily go over the top. I think and I think it only – I feel like it only becomes problematic when they're just in a scene and they don't do anything. I mean like Tarantino's in a lot of his own films and he's – I mean, he has yeah. small parts in Pulp Fiction. He's a small part in Django and Chain from last year. He, he gives himself spotlight roles. I mean, Jimmy is a key role in Pulp Fiction, and mm-hmm. he put himself in that key role. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's an M. Night, M. Night Shyamalan's the same way. He actually, when when he makes a quote cameo in a movie, he's actually a fairly important yeah. like plot yeah. device. I mean, and Kevin Smith is in there, and Clerks, and all those right, movies. Right, right. And uh, and I guess I have. I don't care as much at that point. I, I I think I'm more fine with you are in your movie as an actor and you contribute something to the overall plot of the film and instead of it's it's not a where's Waldo kind of right. game. Which, but I mean, the where's I, Waldo game can be fun. No, and, yeah, and, it certainly and, can especially be fun. in that where's Waldo and, movie. Yeah. And and furthermore, though, the where's Waldo thing usually doesn't interfere with the movie. Hopefully, right. no, hopefully not. It's yeah. something that you can bring to it to appreciate. And you know, with a Kevin Smith thing, it's kind of like I don't necessarily think of Kevin Smith as doing that because Kevin Smith comes from a place where he played Silent Bob because he didn't have anybody else to play. <laughs> but again, that's, that's very that is very very different. What I'm what I'm talking about is oh I'm just going to pop myself in this shot because I think it'll be right. cool yeah. as opposed to I'm playing Kevin Smith and my character mm-hmm. is this or I'm Ben Affleck and I think I can be the best person in this role that's a lot different yeah. than no, just yeah, absolutely hey let me just uh, you remember that third guy walking behind the Sith Lord in <laughs> scene 27 of this shot that was George Lucas you know that's know the George stuff that, is in Star Wars yeah he's walking to He's in, he's in at least one of the prequels. Yeah, he's his in kids, one of the prequels. Second one in the kids prequel. are in the third prequel. Right. Yeah. He's in He's in uh, Empire. Number two. He took off his shirt and talked like, Uta Gita Uta Solo. <laughs> he's, in, he's, he's all over that movie. <laughs> Terrible. All right, Zach, uh, anything else you want to add? What did you learn? What are you going to use? What are you going to adapt? I learned to make your movie tight. Get a couple eyes to look at that. Edit it, walk away from a couple of days, edit that thing down some more, because cheese and Pete's. Um, that's important. And, um, you know, you can mix up your shot sheet, shot style every once in a while and it not be totally horrible. You can go against the flow of the norm of the day. Okay. You can get something cool. Did the uh, fiancé watch this with you? No. 
Why not? Because mm, she oh, was putting labels on our save the dates. That's what she was doing. What's the date again? In case people want to send you gifts, <laughs> August second. <2nd>. Uh, <laughs> August. Don't 2nd. send me gifts. Really, don't send me gifts. You have nowhere to. You have no idea where to send them. So it doesn't matter. Exactly. <laughs> General delivery, Kansas. Yeah. How did uh, Zach do on this, Rodrigo? I think he did well. Um, he clearly spent some time thinking about the movie, analyzing its. Um, properties and looking at um what what different things mean you know he uh, again um the only real weakness in in his approach is that he saw some of the strange techniques but didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what they meant which you know i mean it's good that he noticed them so i'm not i i wouldn't come down on him too hard i i'll, I'll give him a pass but just mm. remember for the future just for your own comfort <laughs> in this show if there's a if something weird happens in a movie you should at least come up with a read of it noted thank you overlord rodrigo there you go all right zach take us out of here oh okay uh that's gonna be it for zach on film this week make sure to head over to majorspoilers.com and give your thoughts on Rebel Without a Cause in the podcasting posting page. Uh, while you're at Major Spoilers, make sure to click on that Amazon.com link where you can go buy a cool red jacket and you can wear it all the time. And well, it's not going to cost you any extra, but a little bit will come back to Major Spoilers to keep all the shows we produce for you completely free and coming to you regularly week after week after week after week. Um, so next week on Zach on Film, we're going to be talking Taxi... Driver. That is. That is correct. And that will be next time on Zach on Film. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.